Hi, everybody. It's Mind Rolling. We're back, David and I, Raghu. And today uh, we can't say how special our guest is, but we will because it's Gelek Rinpoche uh, who is with us today, who um, we are so, so proud to have on the podcast, who has so much wisdom for everybody, so much to share that will uh, enable us all to, uh, to get a better grip on our lives, Rinpoche. That's what we need to do. Uh, with your help. So I'm going to uh, let David take uh, the mic over here for a second and uh, give you a little bit more of an idea, and then we'll uh, we'll get into it with uh, Rinpoche. Yes, well, welcome, Rinpoche, to our little circle here. Uh, before we get into a, a real conversation with you, uh, people should know, basically, um, like many other uh men and women of, of the Tibetan Buddhist lineage uh, left, had to leave Tibet in 1959, eight years after the, um, the communist Chinese invaded and took over that country and uh, lived in, in, in India uh, for a long time and then ended up in the lovely town of Ann Arbor, Michigan, which I've been to. Mm-hmm. And uh, as he says in, in, in one of his books, Tibet's loss was the United States and Europe's gain and that balance is something we're all very uh, grateful for, even though we know the hardship, suffering, and some of the ghastly things that happened in those times. Uh, so we're, we're just so proud and thrilled to have you here. And I would like to, you know, start off. Uh, I read the book about death. I mean, life, love, and death. Um, and the sort of crucial headline for me from your teachings was how to combat negative emotions. Uh, obviously, there are many other things that we can talk about, but I want to start there and ask you, what is your basic advice to deal with the torrent, the tsunami of negative emotions that overwhelm all of us every day? Uh, what, is the, what is the starting point to deal with that issue? Well, I like to say, with the little I know, with my experience, um, the negative emotions, which I call it, is referring to anger, hatred, obsession, jealousy, all these are, these type of emotions, I call them negative emotions. So I myself notice that I have all of them. Nothing was shot. So I was called incarnate Tibetan Lama. But even then, negative emotions are very intact. I don't know whether the positive emotions are emotions are intact or not. Negative emotions I get very often. If I get insulted, I get upset. If the insulting continues, I get hatred. Uh, If someone coolly comparable getting better, I get jealous. (laughs) And uh, all this I get, I have it. And uh, it also tortures too tortures to 
because it tosses, because I know it is not good, because I know it was not supposed to be especially with me, but I notice it there, so I get tortured too. And also, as we all know, these negative emotions interfere with our life and our living. Anger makes you not happy. Anger makes you very unhappy. And it brings hatred. You know, we just had eight years of uh, um, this Iraq war. I don't want to say eight years of Bush administration, but <laughs> but eight years of Iraq war. So every morning you hear how many people died and this and that. The first thing in the morning is the number of people died, you can hear, which makes your day very unhappy. But that is within you, within yourself, what do you do? So what I did is uh, first recognize, recognize the situation, then recognize this unhappiness is coming because of this anger and the hatred combined emotion that which is controlling my entire thoughts. So everything is not good. So I have to recognize that. And then you know what? The mindfulness is the very important point in there. Be mindfulness. Mindfulness of not necessarily not thinking, but mindfulness of recognizing that my mind is controlled by these negative emotions. And then try to look at the negative emotions and see how it is coming and controlling me, even though you do not know how it's controlling, but we acknowledge this negative emotion is controlling me and try to put at the other side and look at it. Look at it. Look at it, meditate on that. Meditate on the negative emotion in the one side and your mind on the other side, how these races of this negative power coming and overpowering your mind. Overpowering in the sense your mind cannot utilize any other thoughts. You cannot utilize, engage love. You cannot engage compassion. You cannot access to any one of them because that powerful sort of force coming from the negative emotion of a particularly anger and overtaking you. Recognize that. Stop the race. Sit down. Give yourself a minute to rest and breathe. Think of compassion. 
finger of the love. And these are important. And so the mind had a little balance, little balance, not only the possible anger, hatred, but also your mind think about the love, compassion, particularly love. Love is the one who can really balance the the balance the anger hatred. Loving to anybody doesn't matter. Though Tibetan Buddhism tells you all living beings, but that is long shot. <laughs> loving to everybody. And also and also little compassion for those who are suffering. And that's what um, you can do. The first thing for yourself is you can do that. But if you cannot access your mind to a love and a compassion, and that you're still engaging with that negative forces, then think nothing. Sit idle. Maybe you count the breath which everybody knows, or but try not to think anything else. You know why? Very negative force when engaged, it's difficult to switch to a positive force. So you provide neutral state, neutral state. So that's why you may give yourself a little time to relax, breathe, and try not to think anything else. And that is how I handle it. And, and then when you're used to it a little more for love and the compassion, then you can look at it, anger and the hatred, and maybe you can laugh at it. Or after a little while, it will not come for a while. And then sometime it may come, you can say, hey, hello, how are you? I haven't seen you for a while. <laughs> That's what Ram Das told me. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. Actually, you tell a story about Ram Das, which illustrates this somewhat. Would you repeat that story about the businessman across the ta the dinner table? Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, Ram Das told me uh, that a businessman uh, he was doing the asset, and he said he. He wrongly calculated the, I think one of the Jewish holidays is Rosh Hashanah, or Rosh Hashanah, I think. And uh, so he has to go to the dinner and uh, family dinner. So he said, well, he's driving the car. The steering is like a snake. And but somehow he managed to get home and sit across the, the, the business person. The businessman is throwing a little dot of arrow from his mouth coming towards Ramdas. So he said he's picking up those arrows, catching them, and putting on the plate, <laughs> rather than arrow hitting him, putting on the plate. And um, so I think it is good protection from the negative uh, attacks. Um, so I think not only the asset, but you know, asset plus uh, 
his training helped him give the protection. Uh, very definitely, yeah. Mm. I think it's a very interesting thing because he's picking up each arrow and putting them on the plate and looking at them. <laughs> uh, beautiful. <laughs> it's interesting, yes. Um, I think many people uh, hear about, uh, of course, so many Tibetan Buddhists have come into this country and come to the West, and you just mentioned that before. Uh, that is uh, out of the horror of what's gone on in Tibet that has been a blessing and grace for the West to have these teachings come. And so many people hear about incarnate lamas and tulkus and so on, and of course, most famously, they know about His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, but uh, th most of them don't really understand what that is in terms of what consciousness is coming from predecessor. What is, uh, what is that incarnate? What is it that comes from uh, the, the previous incarnation that, um, that passes over into this new incarnation? And I'll tell you my own little experience, which, which I've told before on this podcast, but I'd like to tell you, Rinpoche, is yeah. I, I met the uh, 16th Karmapa in a black hat ceremony before he died in the early 1980s. And uh, it was a very powerful experience for me. Um, and when I got right near him as he was doing the ceremony, putting the uh, silk cloth around everybody, the kata, and uh, I, he reminded me so much of Neem Karoli Baba, which is our guru, my guru, Ramdas's guru. Yes, I know. Yeah. yeah. He, it was just uncanny how much he reminded. It's a real siddha. So uh, fast forward to two years ago, I happened to get uh, fortunate to be in a, in a hotel room with uh, His Holiness Karmapa 17th, the young man, the incarnate of uh, Lama. And uh, we were just talking very informally, and then at one point he also did that kata little thing. He put it, you know, I had offered it to him, and then he held my hand and th hand thanked me for coming and so on. Just a beautiful uh, being. And in that moment, I had a sense of what that is that comes and, and uh, carries over into this being. I felt so familiar with, with the 17th from my experience with the 16th. Can you just talk about w w your own experience of this? And, and of course, you were... Um, uh, this, I'm not sure who the, uh, your, the uh, previous Lama was that you were incarnate of, but just a little personal experience about that. Yeah, well, uh, I don't have much personal experience to share with you. But honestly... Uh, my previous incarnation was a, a great uh, Buddhist teacher, outstanding learned scholar throughout the Tibet. He's, he's more famous of learning than his rank or position or not like a, uh, not like a very high Tibetan Lama like the Pension Lama or the Kamaba or, or Digumba 
or Dukpa or not like that. Just a learned, great learned scholar. And not only a great learned scholar, but he sort of known the top most scholar throughout great monasteries in Tibet. Debung, Sarah, Kanden, Tashilumbo, everywhere. Because he, though he is from Debung and not a Sarah and Kanden, but most of the Sarah, Kanden, Keshe's learned scholars are his students. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of known that way and mm-hmm. became the abbot of the upper tantric college. There are two tantric. He's become abbot of upper tantric college and um, then he passed away during the abbotship in the office. He passed away. And his deputy was present his holiness, Dalai Lama's senior tutor or senior master, Debji Ling Rinpoche, was his deputy at that time. So later, Ling Rinpoche told me, don't you remember you used to do this and that? So I said, I remember nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember nothing. So anyway, uh, so I've been recognized uh, to be the reincarnation of that great master. Mm. So I get, and then also from my family background, uh, and I've been related to the 13th, my father was a 13th Dalai Lama's nephew and also very well-known Tibetan incarnate Lama, just like almost like a Kamaba type, Mm. that type of big Lama. So from that background point of view, and then I got a high ranking in the monastery. Other than otherwise, I don't think I am entitled at all, but I got a high ranking in that way. And that way I get advantage of learning. So I really had a great opportunity of learning in the greatest monastery ever available at that time, Mm. really. And uh, yet I was so young, I didn't pay much attention to the subject that I have to learn. I was mostly forced by to learn you know, I've been recognized by age four and five. So then they teach you the alphabets and so on and forth and reading and and so on and forth. So you really pay no attention. I pay no attention to my subject till I am uh, 13, 14, 14, 15, 16. And then is this time for me to pack up from Tibet so I did have a great opportunity. My learning is mediocre, <laughs> mediocre. So, but now if you are comparing with the people who have studied in India and all that, so because just because of the age, it's not so bad. 
uh, or those days, I think I'm mediocre. So anyway, so then, you know, then this uh, 1959 came, uh, I described it very easily in the book, in the Good Life, Good Death book. It looks to me, I've been picked it up in the 18th century by helicopter, carried over the Himalaya and dropped in 20th century in India. That's exactly my experience of crossing the Himalayas and getting into India in, in the shortcut. You know, somebody picked it up in the 18th century culture and then carried over to the Himalayas and dropped it in the 20th century Indian culture. That's exactly what I felt. Mm. Wow. That's exactly what had happened. You know, you say in the book, Rinpoche, in regard to that, that that journey, which might you may characterize as a helicopter, but it was full of hardship, and you were not immediately uh, in the same you know status as you were in Tibet. And you talk about it in terms of impermanence and the way we can never count on anything remaining, and that you speak about the humility you gained, the humble attitude you gained, from that drastic change, from being in that monastery and then being in India, a refugee. Would you expand upon that to tell our listeners a little bit about it, the nature of impermanence? Yeah, it was true. And I tried to make it a summing up by helicopter. But if you go in the detail, you know, uh, and I walked, honestly, literally walked across the Himalaya in mangrove. And there are days, there are days that I did not even sleep. And there are days that I have to stand in the in the mud up to the chest and uh, then try to fall asleep. And uh, then when the next day dawn comes and uh, we move, and it happens a number of times to me as well as going over the mountain, it is not an easy. It is extremely in between the two little hills of the mountain. There's nothing else but a tree or two trees lying across. So you have to really walk over like you are ac acrobatic specialist type. You have to walk through and did all that. That was not an easy. Plus, we have no food. Plus, there's no food. And there are days without uh, proper food. Uh, whatever you can get, you have to eat it. And uh, what, whatever you can find, the more liquid, you have to drink it. So it is not an easy. It's very difficult. And finally, when I reached to a civilized place called Tawang in India, that is northwest frontier, northeast frontier of India, when you reach there, when you reach there, and then people begin to give you food, 
people begin to help you. However, however, you know, when, when the Indian government moved you down, I was happy to get a seat in the garbage truck. Garbage truck at the corner of the garbage truck. I used to own a motor vehicle in Tibet. I have, I mean, there are very few people who have a motor vehicle. We have, a, we have actually two and the truck. So we have three motor vehicles. So I was happy to get place in the garbage truck. And I appreciated and I thought I will never be able to put my body in the movable car. <laughs> That's what I thought. So I'm happy to get place in garbage truck. And then of course, uh, there being a pride of being a Lama, being a good family, being a 13 Dalai Lama's relationship, uh, being a, a, you know, all that type of very big head, I have that. They are all smashed in, in that period. They are all totally smashed. I can, I appreciate everything. I can say thank you to everybody. And I like to say thank you to everybody. Uh, it's not because, mm, mm, just acknowledge. And even I notice these days, the young lamas begin to pick up, say, mm, mm, no, I don't know, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. So I, I had that before. They all forgot on the Himalayas. So that's been very, very helpful to reduce your um, ego. Ego, you know, really ego. Because ego is the one who will really make you very unhappy. Because your ego will make the other person almost sometimes they will change you, change all other people are there to get you, just to get you. And, and so you will read everybody is that they're there to get you rather than people may help you. Particularly Eastern people's thinking and Western people's thinking are slightly different. Eastern people are very, a little bit backward. People are really suspicious of everything. Mm. Uh, everything. They think everybody's looking down on them. And I have a brother who lives in Tibet who came to visit me here. So he wanted to do something. So, so something, he wanted to do something. So I said, well, I'll ask my secretary. I have my volunteer secretary to help me. So I, I told him, I told my secretary to help you to, to write or do that. So he went and chased her and she will say, I'll do the next one. So naturally, right? He came back to me saying, this person is looking down on me and he wanted to do it. So this suspicion 
of the people are looking down on you and people try to get you. And it's always within the head, which is the ego, which makes. Really, ego makes everyone is there to get you. So you become, I, I used to talk this, you become yourself like a porcupine, ready to shoot anything, you know, anything. And that is the ego that makes you. So the smashing ego, drastic situation like mine, I'm very happy with that. Mm. Honestly, honestly. Because, you know, people have biggest difficulty to handle ego is a very big problem. Easy to handle anger compared with the ego. Easy to handle obsession. Even is not so difficult to handle jealousy. But the ego is really, really hard. Number one, we do not separate ourselves and our ego. Identity is mixed. And when you try to smash ego, you think you're smashing yourself. Mm-hmm. That is the ego's biggest protection. Well, anyway, I'm sorry. Did <laughs> you ask me that question? <laughs> No, that's really no great. apologies necessary here. I thought that was a marvelous answer. I think. I mean, it just for people out there, first of all, who are upset because their cable television just went down, or their internet is not fast enough, and then get irritated. And I count myself in this uh, unfortunate crew. <laughs> to hear to hear your garbage truck story might just provide perspective in this exact moment to uh, allow us to be a little less demanding and our ego to be a little less powerful within us. Um, Raga, you had a question. I yeah, think. I do. I Well, not a question so much as I heard uh, some talk that uh, you gave, uh, and I, I liked uh, how you put this thing, because we're you're talking about ego, so, uh, and you called, uh, what we do is we hoard the ego, and uh, we, we hoard these thoughts of me, everything centering around me, me, me. Uh, we have a friend who who uh, named Krishnadas. I don't know if you, you know. He's a big chant guy. His you friend. Krishnadas, I know him. Oh, he's you do. Guy, wonderful guy. Oh, ah, okay. So he's he, Yeah. Yeah. So he he says you wake up in the morning, and immediately you're in the movie of me. <laughs> this is, a, and what? this is the movie of me, and this is what you're talking about, and um. And and uh, you say you don't have to go to school, which is the funny thing. We don't have to go to school to learn how to protect the me. Can you t- so talk about? And then everything becomes narrow. And you talked about you talk about both protecting that me on a day to day basis, and how everything when you do that, and how everything becomes very very narrow in your in your life, and then maybe some of the antidotes to that narrowness and that protection of me. Um, I do remember uh, once I was in Omega Institute with the Ramdas, and uh, K- Krishna was there, 
are leading the challenges. And I think I remember very vaguely that uh, uh, I did say that myself is always engaged with the ego. And uh, and um, so that's, I sort of vaguely remember uh, been talking about ego at those days uh, very strongly because this me, me uh, business is so much within ourselves. We talk about the compassion. We talk about the love. And I see two problems. Number one, the moment we say a word compassion, you know, what do we do? We look out. Compassion to a poor people, people who are suffering. We don't forget, we forget ourselves. I mean, nobody talks having compassion to self. Uh, or maybe the language changes, I don't know. My English is so bad. So maybe the language, term, terminology may be changing. But you must have a compassion to yourself because, because you know, whatever we are talking about is suffering of people. Suffering of the people, what we are observing is physical, mental, and emotional sufferings. We are, myself, is the biggest example of suffering, honestly. Not necessarily I'm talking me as an individual person, but me as a self, everybody. Biggest suffering is self. Because when you look in yourself, your mind is directly to you. There is no hidden, no hiding, nothing. So when you look in your mind, you have all the worries. You have all the fears. And you have all the responsibilities, concern, pressure, everything. Look in your body. You have all this trouble. This thing that, in my case, I'm diabetic. Uh, I'm on kidney dialysis. And all this, and, uh, and I don't see it well. And the one side of my eye got lost somehow. But see, when you look at your body, you have the biggest physical suffering. You look in your mind, you have all the mental sufferings you have. So you are the biggest example of a sufferer. And if you don't care yourself, who else going to care for you? So the first and foremost is looking in yourself and to see yourself as a suffering and to develop compassion for yourself. Develop love for yourself. Your love, your compassion must uplift you, must uplift you from the, if not physical, but at least the mental sufferings. Your love, your compassion should be able to uplift you 
above the worries, above the pressure, above that. So make yourself straight human being, straight thinking human being. And uh, then you move, really. And uh, you move. This is uh, how I feel, mm -hmm. I do. So then after a little while, even these physical problems doesn't bother you much. Is this a routine? Is it just a routine? And so, so it doesn't bother you much. You know why? It's not that the physical suffering is less. It may be more, but doesn't bother you because you are aware of the thinking. And this, you know, this, one thing I like to say is, doesn't have to be Buddhist. Does not have to be Buddhist. These uh, great tools, the message may be coming from Buddha, message may be coming from Hindu, message may be coming from any great tradition, but these are the method how human beings can utilize and how human beings can use this, ease your suffering a little bit. It doesn't have to be Buddhist, doesn't have to be Hindu, doesn't have to be Judeo-Christian conservative people, you know, honestly. As a human being, these are the great gifts of the earlier spiritual masters. So we pick them up, use them. It doesn't have to become Buddhist. doesn't have to become anything. Be yourself and utilize these tools. And particularly within the Buddha's teacher, there's a tremendous amount of a way of handling these problems. Tremendous. And it depends on the person who is guiding you or who is sharing the information with you. If they are very conservative and they have to be traditional and uh, all rules have to follow and uh, all ceremonies has to go through, well, ceremony is good and ceremony is complicated. But if you pick up the essence of the like in my case, Buddha's message, and take them individually, utilize for individual for solving their problems, and that's what that's what I try to do. I try to communicate uh, with my friends uh, with a two or three retreat in a year, as well as. Every Sunday morning, I talk very similar, like what you and I've been talking now, a very similar to that. Every Sunday morning, I talk on webinar. Uh, on the webinar, every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, hmm. uh, one hour, I talk. So if it has any use for any individual, so, you know, you can really use it. My purpose is if I, what little I know, if I bring something 
to ease some of it, the individual's pain, and then my purpose is fulfilled. Mm. That's what my purpose is all, anyway. Mm. Wow. I'd like to uh, turn the conversation a little bit because of something in, in Love, Life, Love, Death that struck me. I was very friendly with Allen Ginsberg also. Oh, and yeah. Ginsberg is a very good friend of mine. We, at least we have that in common. <laughs> but I, I, uh, I was friendly with him because we did a, we, I produced a, an album with him. I in, see. In 1996, 95, 96, like that era, uh, with him and Paul McCartney. And um, oh, yeah. you're, it's called a, uh, it's called Dance of the Skeleton. And yes, it, it came I from a, a Carnegie have, Hall. I still thing. have that record, Dance of Skeleton. Yeah. Yes. yes. So I did that with some colleagues. And one time Alan and I were traveling together and we were in Minnesota, Minneapolis airport. And he asked me uh, two questions. First question was, are you gay? And I said, no, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> All right. Got that out of the way. He said, what's your biggest fear? And I said, well, death. He said, okay, I'll deal with that at some later time. The day before he passed away, and I know you were there with Patti Smith and everyone. I know you were there. Mm -hmm. at Alan's uh, passing. The day before he passed, he called me and said, remember that question I asked you in Minneapolis? I said, yeah, I do. He said, you were asked me, you said you were afraid of death. I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm about to die, probably tomorrow or the day after. He said, and I'll tell you something. I'm very tranquil. I am so calm. I am so tranquil. That's my answer to you, David. Then he got off the phone. I was deeply distressed, actually, because I loved Alan. But he did do that. He was such a beneficent, kind man that at this moment of supreme challenge, he bothered to call me and one other person that I know about the experience he was having pre his passing. Mm. So I have that story. And when I read what you'd done with him and that you were there, I wanted to ask you specifically about Allen Ginsberg and in your perception who he was and what 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 place he has for us all, not just as a poet, but as a, a man of supreme loving kindness, which is what I found. You know, Allen was a extraordinary American legend, honestly. And um his uh, simple, as you know, straightforward, as you know, he has no politics or whatsoever, no diplomatic, is very, very straightforward and a very kind person. When Alan first met me, I thought my my expression was, uh, it's a little bit short-tempered, <laughs> I thought. And, um, and uh, since ever since I met him, he came at least three or four times in Michigan every year, mm. every year. And then I get to New York or two or three or four times a year 
and we get together all the time, all the time. So then later you realize he is the sweetest guy, not an angry person, yes. sweetest guy, guy, guy he is, he was. Yeah. Great. And uh, as you know, when he was a diagnosis, and he called me, I was in vacation in Cancun, Mexico. Cancun, right? It's Cancun, Mexico. Yeah. And that Alan was on the phone. He was a very official. I have to report something. Report. I said, hey, Alan, no, no, first let me report. Report. So this is the report says, and they diagnosed me as a cancer, and uh, prognosis is two or three months, but judging from my own uh, feeling and my own understanding, I may have less than a month. And um, when these doctors came back, and they came with a long face, so I helped them um, it's cancer, so they said they shook head. And he said, last stage, they shook head. And um, he said, it, so then I said, prognosis, then that's what they told me. But in my opinion, I have less than a month. So this is my report. Then, then he started talking. Then he thought, before, before, if anyone going to tell me that you're going to die, I'm going to hit the ceiling. So now I'm happy, he said. Now I'm happy I'm going. I don't know is this whether your help or whatever it is. I'm happy. So then I said, well, you have to go. Anyway, no one can stay. It's better to go with the happiness. And if you, go, if you know where you're going, That'd be great. Even you don't know you're not, you don't know where you're going, rely on your positive karma and uh, be happy about it. Nothing to be regretted. He said, but I have to do little preparations or something. What preparation? I said, well, there's something to give, something to take. I said, well, forget it. I said, forget it. The people who handle your estate will handle why you want to be happy about it? And then he wanted me to come to New York. I couldn't get him, get, couldn't get there until the day he died. Yeah. Day he died. So day he died, I was there. So first thing I got a call from Bob Rosenthal. Hi. Uh, yeah, Bob told me, this is it. I said, what do you mean this is it? It's not going to wake up anymore. I said, okay. So I called Philip Glass and I told Philip, can you go to where Alan is and don't do anything else except your daily practice. Just close the door and do your daily practice quietly. Hmm. Then I'll get there. So I got there about the noon and the Philip's still sitting there and doing whatever he's doing. 
a lot of people in this room, they're not getting through to Alan, but you know, Philip had put some kind of little something, I don't know what they put, some kind of Ruben round or something. So people don't get near the bed, but they're all there in the one big room. So by the time when I went up there, everybody jumped in. So that's that. And then he died at the night, round about the true, and Patty Smith is there. And I was in Philip's bedroom sleeping. And then I had a funny, I don't know whether I can say it or not, but maybe everybody's friend. So funny uh, perception that um, Alan's hand recognizable, no face, hand recognizable, both hand folded and uh, saying thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so then I woke up and then I exactly uh, the phone calls and the bust. So that's that's the perception I have. I didn't share that with so many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting Rinpoche, we're getting uh, close to the end of the uh, show. Uh-huh. And um, but uh, I would like, um, you have talked about, there's one thing I'd really love for you to talk about. Um, that's back to the uh, teachings. And it's around, you've talked about heart and mind and where consciousness emanates from. And, uh, and you've talked about open-mindedness, maybe also being synonymous with open-heartedness. Can you talk about the uh, the confluence of heart and mind, and how that can get applied in our daily life? It is interesting, you know, when I was in Tibet, training and learning under the great Tibetan masters, and all our thinkings, ideas, everything we talk from the heart, we talk about heart. When you get to the West, we talk from the head. So there is that division between the heart and head. Uh, I don't know where consciousness really is, or maybe borrow the terminology from Christian soul, but though there is no, um, there's no such uh, unchangeable soul may not be there, but there is something like a uh, impermanent soul is every human being will have it. And uh, every human beings uh, whether that is called mind or consciousness or all these are big question. Honestly, big question. Uh, to me, mind is something else and uh, the consciousness is something else. 
but yet it is a tremendous similarity, tremendous, uh, tremendous oneness. Yet there is a slightly separation, and that raises the question: Calls what is a mind? What is consciousness? It is a big, complicated subject, and do we see our mind or consciousness? Yes, we do. We see two different occasions. One occasion during the death period. During the death period. You encounter with your mind, and whether you recognize or not, but you do encounter without any mask or any block. Another thing you encounter by meditation.、Uh, you don't need to die. By meditation, you can do. So. Recognizing your own mind is、uh, important.、Mm-hmm. Not the greatest achievement is important. True meditation, what the Hindu Buddhists called shamatha, concentrated true meditation, develop shamatha. On the basis of your own mind,、mm. is a great, quick, better achievement than develop shamatha on anything else. So, in order to develop the shamatha, before you even focus on mind, you have to have some idea of what mind. Something you have to be focused. Now, what my understanding of the mind is: mind always remains mind, never changed into a physical or form or color or shape. Anything, mind always. Remains mind. What do we perceive when we are focusing on mind? Virtually nothing. Look like looking in the middle of the space, sky. If there's something, you may see it, but empty sky. So it's just a blank. You perceive something completely blank, like spacious open space. Yet you will have an understanding and a perception of rather perceiving it as unchangeable. Plus. Basis to perceive any 
anything, thoughts, ideas, things, everything. This is base of all, basics. If the self is unchangeable, but it provided the basis to present anything. Are you with me? Or yeah. am I talking to myself? Thumbs up. No, 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 we're just Sorry. quiet because we really want to drink this in. So, <laughs> so something like that, something like that, and uh, when you have an idea of understanding of that, and that is the beginning of what I call it, found basis of the meditation of mind. So it's very difficult to introduce mind, but uh, and that's the what it is. So the Buddhist principle, mind never becomes matter, matter never becomes mind. That's why it's unchangeable. So Buddha mind we're talking of here. Right. So or mind, women mind. It's right. each and every one of us have it. Is there is there any individuation of that mind? Yes. Each and everything is individualized. And uh, your mind is not my, not my mind is not yours. It is always like that. Very individual, very perfect, uh, yet is adaptable. But uh, like in the case of a tulku, that... Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to answer that. You said, in the case of Tulku, the consciousness or the soul of the individual supposed to be taking rebirth. So since we believe in the reincarnation, the old man forgets his old uh, consciousness, old body, and then separate this body and mind, and that the mind goes and whether you're going to the Parto or not, whether you're going to the Pure Land or not, ultimately you take a rebirth as a human being, human being. So that's why it's supposed to be old soul coming back to make it short. Uh, I don't know whether my expression of old soul coming back is right or wrong. <laughs> but then you know, I noticed one thing. Memories doesn't come back. Uh, even characters not necessarily come back. Mm. Uh, interests also not necessarily come back, but if it is connected with the condition, it picks easily. Mm. If it is not connected with the condition, it is difficult to pick up. Mm. These are some weighty topics that we've gotten into here with Rinpoche, huh? Oh, my, my. Well, we thank you so much. And uh, I'd say to everybody out there, um, David, do you know know the name of the site? Uh, Is it gelakrinpoche.com or? Jewel Heart. Jewel Heart. Okay. Jewelheart.org, is it? Or com? .org. 
Okay, or, so yes. So jewelheart.org, you must go there. And you must find also that you can connect with Rinpoche on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. East Coast time and uh, take part in this. And also um, you, you have an opportunity to support uh, Rinpoche's work and his teachings. So please do that. Um, and also, of course, you can get his book on Amazon. Uh, Good Life, Good Death is the name of the book. And um, uh, so please take advantage of that. And, uh, well, we'd like to get back with you one of these days, Rinpoche. This thank has been you, so I'm delightful. And thank you so much. And I'm glad, glad to know, David, your old Ellen friend. Great. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, that was wonderful story. Wonderful story. So uh, we say uh, namaskar. Thank and, you so much. Thank you. And uh, thank, thank you. you. And David, we show uh, everybody go to mindpodnetwork.com and take advantage of all the wonderful teachers that we have up there. And also tune into Mind Rolling. And we'll have uh, Rinpoche, some of his information on the page when we put the podcast up. So again, thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you so much.